Let's take our Bible and turn to that favorite book of the Reformation and one of mine, if we can say there's favorites in the Bible, Romans, the book of Romans in chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. We'll read through the first 13 verses. You should read them all, but you can do that at your leisure. I'm going to focus on verses 5 through 9. Hear the word of God. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does these things or those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thus far we read, the book of Romans, and let me repeat the text which will be my sermon text this morning, verses 5 through 9, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them, referring to the book of Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way, referring to Deuteronomy 30, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, for who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. For what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved." If you look at that first word of our text, I'm referring to verse 5 and the first word 4, you're led back to something that is the basis for the conclusion that our text is. Paul has just been speaking of Christ who is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And now he would prove it in our text. He proves it by speaking of Moses, who writes about the righteousness which is of the law, but also proves it from the Bible 
which itself, even in the Old Testament, speaks of a righteousness of faith. This is a conclusion, I say, for what has been said, an astounding statement, and it should be an astounding statement to Jewish ears and to Gentile ears, your ears and mine, that Christ is the end of the law. Now, that doesn't mean that there is no more law, nor does it mean that in the Old Testament there was a righteousness of the law, and that's how one was saved in distinction from the New Testament. Basically, however, all that Christ being the end of the law means is that he's the goal. He's the aim of the law. He's the focus of the law, even the law of the Old Testament. And the Jews were saved just like we are by faith in him to whom the law was leading in the Old Testament. The Bible is this wonderful book, this one message of salvation in Christ And even the law and all the commandments points to him as the goal. Well, now, this is what we're going to wrestle with here today, but also with regard to what's brought up here in a a fascinating way, in a beautiful and comforting way, that the word of God is near. The word of Christ is near. And people weren't to think it's not near in the Old Testament already, nor are we in the New Testament. The nearness of the Word of God is such a beautiful thing because it means grace and it means comfort and it means God saying, I love you. That's what this nearness concept is in the Bible. It's something that Luther discovered and rediscovered for the sake of the church, God leading him, because the Word indeed was always in the gospel in the Bible, but it was hidden. It was far away, as far as east is from west, it might have well as been when the the gospel was buried under all of the rubbish of Rome, all of the trappings, all of the works that you had to do and the hoops that you had to climb through in order to get to God and, and the Pope that you had to go through and the priests and so on. Luther was given to know the word is near, And this was the freedom of a monk, the freedom of a sinner, and the world has never been the same. We want to preach that reformational faith, and we want to do that also in light of the fact that sometimes we don't know just how near God is, just how near he is, and all this other stuff in our life that's near, very near, gets in the way of our seeing that God's nearness is the main thing. We need to remember that. Some of us wrestle with sin. We all wrestle with sin. We should. I hope you're on the mat every day wrestling with sin. But I hope you're winning every single wrestling match with sin, the world, and the devil in the name of Jesus. It's about him, you see. And we need to remember that his nearness is victory. His nearness is the possibility that we can be saved not only, but that we can be happy Christians. Even though we sin over and over again, the main thing in our lives is the main one in our lives, Jesus and salvation in him. So let's consider this nearness of God 
this God who's drawn near, this word that is near. That would be the theme, the word that's near. And we want to consider that this is a gospel word and basically flesh this out from the text that the gospel is salvation in Jesus. And then that nearness and something which Israel couldn't get, the Old Testament people, something that had to be brought to bear to the church of the New Testament because we're not so real, really understanding of that, I think. The nearness of God and the gospel. And then finally, that because of this nearness, there's faith and there's confession of faith and gladness forevermore. Paul is speaking here of a righteousness that is of faith and contrasting that he is which is with a righteousness which is of the law righteousness not the rights of man but the righteousness of god that's the key uh, concept of the book of romans a righteousness that's given freely in jesus a right standing so we're innocent before god a right condition so that we're liberated from all of our unrighteousness. The Romans has been expounding this. It's the book of righteousness, the righteousness of God. And it's a wonderful thing that Luther discovered. And when he was reading in Romans 1, he, he stumbled across this righteousness of God truth that comes from God. He finally discovered and said With regard to that discovery of the righteousness of God, Eureka! He was a miner who discovered gold and rubies and pearls in this mine of the scriptures, finally been opened to him, and he would share the treasure. We would share that today, the treasures of the righteousness of God freely given. And we ought to understand this is a monumental thing, Come to church, we're all about the celebration of this monumental thing, this great thing, this outstanding truth of the Bible, the one message, this righteousness of God in Christ through faith. Because if for no other reason, it's, a, it's in contrast to our natural state and condition, and Romans has been setting this out. The Gentiles in Romans 1 are said to be those without any righteousness, So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against everyone who's fallen in sin. And that's you and that's me and that's every single one who's born of man in flesh and blood. We're not righteous. And Romans 1 outlines the fact that this is is a terrible thing because it's not just that we're not right with God, but we hold it down, the truth that God would reveal even from heaven of his righteousness. We hold that down. We suppress it in unrighteousness so that our being not right with God is not a mere matter of ignorance. It's a matter of our will. And how Luther struggled with this concept of the will of man, wrote against it in his his favorite book, his favorite work next to his translation of the Bible into German, this bondage of the will, how Luther knew that. Now, we must know that. You know that? 
We desire to be unrighteous. That's our problem. Not just that we are unrighteous. We desire it. Anything but being right with God and having my way straight-jacketed because God tells me what's right. I don't want that. It was the sin of Adam and Eve in paradise. Perfect place. Can you imagine the children? You're in a perfect place, perfect home, perfect yard, perfect swimming pool, perfect boats, perfect relationships, perfect with God, and then you say, I don't want it. Now, that's foolishness, isn't it? But that's the foolishness of the sin of Adam and Eve in a perfect place with a perfect God and them in perfection somehow crept into the mind and into the will. We're not content. We're not going to believe anymore this God who has given one word for us and it's not enough for us. So they believe the devil who questions everything that God ever said. Yea, hath God said, and the rest is history. The history of unrighteousness, being wrong with God. And that's Romans 1 and Romans 2 and 3 is, is clear revelation on the fact that there's none righteous, no, not one. So Paul writes to Roman Christians, among whom are Jews, who might have thought that they were right with God, Righter than the unrighteous Gentiles. He says, no, you're not. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeks after God. And this is what you should remind the Arminians of. None that has free will to will for God. None righteous, none seeks after God. That's the indictment of any, every heretic who says, we're free to do whatever we want, and, and I can just choose for God whenever I want. No, you can't. And you won't. How stubborn we are. So you have here righteousness of God set forth. A righteousness of God. The righteousness of faith that says, uh, speaks in a certain way. But just think about that. The righteousness of faith. That's what Luther discovered and rediscovered. A rightness with God that's received. That's what faith does. All faith does is receive. It receives. All faith is is something that's a receiving mechanism, as it were. A pipeline, as some of the fathers have said, through which you receive all this stuff, good stuff, streams of stuff, from Christ. Faith is this bond, our catechism says, Lord's Day 7, that joins us to Christ and grafts us into him and so that his righteousness is imputed to us and our unrighteousness is imputed to him. Meaning, when Jesus dies on the cross, he dies so that we might be right with God and all that he is, his rightness, is reckoned to our account. And here we were, guilty, and God says, now I just see my, the blood of my son on you. And yes, indeed, there was your sin, but it was all laid on my son, and I vented my wrath upon him. And beloved, you think, Sinai was shaking and thundering and on fire. We read of that this morning. 
Think of the cross mountain outside the camp where the Son of God bore the wrath of God for sinners. Where the Son of God had to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was dereliction, abandonment of the Son to show the powers of hell and hellions and the devil himself unleashed upon the Son, the perfect Son of God. All he could taste and see was darkness. Hence the three hours of darkness on the cross. Darkness always a sign of the outer darkness. And Christ outside the camp of Jerusalem and on the cross signifying that he bore the curse. There was no place on him, uh, for him on earth or in heaven. He was there in between in this inglorious limbo under the wrath and judgment of God. But that's all for our sake. And the gospel here is there's a righteousness that comes through faith, righteousness of faith, Romans chapter 10 and verse 6, righteousness of faith. This is what Romans is all about. This was what Luther lived for. Justification by faith alone is the watchword of the Lutheran Reformation, and it's ours as well. In fact, some have said that without this, because it's so fundamental to the gospel, a church will fall. When the church preaches justification by faith alone, without the works of the law, without having to do anything and merit anything with God, then it stands And only then it stands. This is the faith of our fathers. This is something so marvelous because you see, it's all it all spells the word G-R-A-C-E. Grace. Free grace to sinners. And you realize that this is why we're here. This is a grace congregation a sovereign grace congregation, meaning it's all of grace. Sovereign means king. Grace is king here. It's king in the ruling of the elders, the ministering to the flock, in the teaching of the catechism, in the ministering of the mercies of God in, in, uh, among the deacons. It's about grace. And it's here especially in the preaching. I'm here to tell you Not how you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps or you can rely upon your pedigree or the color of your blood. I'm here to preach to you the blood of Jesus, which spells grace. In fact, you could come down. Every single doctrinal word is spelt the same way. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, predestination. How do you spell that? That God chose us before the foundation of the world in love. That's grace. Whereas Timothy says it's grace that God had for you before the foundation of the world. How special is that? How uncommon that wonderful saving grace of God. And shown to you, grace finds its way and righteousness therefore is ours by faith. Among the most miserable, grace is no distinguisher of persons 
Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. There's no levels. We're all leveled. We're on the playing field of death. We're dead in sins. That's all. That's it. And you come here, if you come here by faith and you're groveling in the mire of your sins, seeking the way out and finding it only in Jesus, then you've come to the right place and we're all in the same place. There's no one here who is any closer to God than another, comparatively speaking, and in himself. We're all far, far away from God, but God is near to us. And this is the second point I want to bring out here, that nearness. The righteousness of the law is that the man who does these things shall live by them. There's a righteousness of faith that speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven and so on. But then verse 8, what does it say? What does the righteousness of faith say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The word is near. And so Israel should not have looked for the word anywhere else or they should have known it already. They did know it. It was in their mouth. That was their confession. And it was in their heart. It was in their heart of hearts. They knew this nearness of God. This is what the Old Testament brings out in Deuteronomy 30. And I'm going to read that. That's being quoted here. Moses is speaking to them in light of the Old Covenant. But of something astounding. Verse 11 of Deuteronomy 30, quoted in our text. This commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It's near. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea, somewhere over there beyond the Mediterranean, that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But this, and this is our text, the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. Now, this is the case in Israel. And what's being taught here in light of the New Testament is that Moses, who taught a righteousness of the law, and let me, let me just expound this for a minute here. Moses, who taught a righteousness that came from doing the law, what it's saying is that that was only part of Moses. It was a righteousness of the law that he was teaching. He was led by God to bring this thing called the Old Covenant, covenant of law. Do this, do this, do this, and live. It's all throughout the Old Testament. That was the special revelation of God to that people then. And it was this old covenant that was to teach them how great their sins are because nobody could keep the law. Nobody could keep perfectly the law or all of the law or all the time the law. But you see, this wasn't simply so that they'd be cursed and left in abandonment. 
by God and, and hopeless despair. No, it was a blessing to Israel to have that law, to be taught of their sins so that they might remember what was underneath the giving of the law, what had been given to Father Abraham year, uh, four, 430 years before they were instituted as a nation. What was given to Father Abraham? The truth of the covenant of grace so that the law was given as kind of a, a, a thing to go on top of the promise I will be your God and you will be my people to remind them that the promises and the presence of God, the nearness of God is free and it's only in the Savior Jesus. So that's the whole idea here. Moses is taught here, uh, presented here as someone who, who taught the righteousness of the law and that it was impossible to have a righteousness that came merely of the law. But he's also presented here as someone through whom it was revealed that there was a nearness of God and the presence of the righteousness of God in Christ, the righteousness of faith, already to the Old Testament Israelites. See, here's what happened. In the Old Testament, God said, do this, do this, do this, do this. Do that, do that, do that, do that. 613 commandments. And all the people, they gave up. Didn't take long. They gave up. And so they were thinking, how in the world is this relationship with God going to be real and happy? How can we be righteous with God? This is the holiest among them. A high priest, maybe, who looked the part of a holy man. Even he would have to say, I, I, I can't do this. And so they'd begin wondering where this righteousness could come from. It came a saying in Israel for something impossible. Something's impossible, you say, who can now ascend up into the heavens? Or who can go into the abyss? This is, it's as if Paul is quoting here a saying that was common in Israel. There's an impossible thing, and we need somewhere else to discover righteousness. It's not going to come from little old me and little old Israel. We're going to go across the sea to look for this treasure of something that's called righteousness, which we cannot attain. And it was the purpose of Moses at that time, as it is the Apostle Paul. So you don't look anywhere else than right here. The word that's right near to you. In your mouth, you're already confessing it. And in your heart, you know it. How much more in the New Testament? The word near. The word was near in promise and picture and prophecy to the Old Testament people. They shouldn't have looked beyond their nose and beyond their heart and beyond their confession. It was all about Messiah to come. It was all about that promised seed of the woman made in the garden already to Adam and Eve and the promised seed pictured in the ram caught in the thicket. Catechism students, you know that. Jesus, 
Jehovah, our righteousness, Jeremiah 23, verse 6, the Lamb of God, no form that we should desire him, but he's wounded for our iniquities, bruised for our sins. Isaiah, the prophet, shouted. He was near in all those Old Testament ways, but now Paul says, this is the gospel I preach to you, a nearness of God and righteousness that is possible not only, but a reality in the incarnate Son of God. Near he was always in the Old Testament to be understood and appreciated only by faith, not by sight, but near. A little babe. Near. And this wise mediator, Jesus, near on the cross, near. Near now because God has come near and said, I love you and I give you faith in him. Now you believe that. You believe that, congregation. He's as near as your heart in you. And you are righteous and there's no condemnation to those in Christ and whom, in whom he dwells. But here's our problem. We're always asking the, the, the question, how is it possible? It's, it's a real problem that Paul's addressing here. Moses was in the Old Testament. People were saying, this is hopeless. I, I'm just without any hope. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I've stumbled and I've stumbled and I've fallen worse than that. And I should never have done that. And now my life is irreparable, irredeemable, impossibly lost. That's what we want to say. It's as far away as heaven. Who's going to ascend there? You can't do that. It's as far away as the grave, the abyss. It's as far as the other side of the sea. It's as far as God is for me. Can't be near. It's impossible. But what Paul is doing here is pointing people to this righteousness of faith that says something. It says this. In Jesus, God has done the impossible. In Jesus, we have a God who went down into the abyss. And we have a God who's ascended to the right hand of God. And if you ask the question, who shall ascend into the holy hill of God? Well, Jesus has. And with him, you go up for your righteousness in him. You're righteous in him. And this God of the impossible, therefore, is yours and is mine. Through faith now. Not jumping through hoops, not through your continual penances, as Luther had to do. But as a free gift. Free gift. Free gift. Believe that. And again, I say, this is the problem we have with God. We think that it's going to be all 
just the way we would want it. And we'd be assured all the time, and once a Christian, always a Christian, and always happy. And spoke of this last night, and Luther had to combat even back then this theology of glory. And many are pawning off as the true gospel. I mean, this, the gospel that Christianity is, is a glitzy thing. And once you have Jesus, you have seven steps to happiness and three steps to get rid of the sin. And, and your church is going to grow and blossom and you're going to have a campus here and a campus there because everybody likes you. And you're going to get married and have a dozen children and everybody's going to say, what, what, what a father you are, what a husband you are. And no bends in the road, no potholes on your street. No carpet that needs repairing because you got all the money. And we find ourselves falling for that and our life becomes nothing but a continual hopelessness because we never attained that. But looking to Jesus, we learn that it's about his suffering and maybe also about our having to believe in the midst of impossible things. Maybe that's the way that God wants for us so that we can know something of this greatness of the grace of God in this Redeemer who went down, who's gone up. And it wasn't easy. It meant the bankruptcy of heaven and the shedding of the blood of God's precious Son. And so it means now you follow Jesus and you deny yourself and you take up your cross and you follow him all the way to the ends of the earth even. But always believing in the God of the impossible because of the fact that he's God. And so we confess this, beloved. Don't you dare doubt it. It's sin to doubt this, to doubt that you can be forgiven. It's understandable. You understand that, don't you? You have not all the same measures of faith. Uh, so I, I'm not even on the, the scale of measurement, it seems to me. I just live by my sight too often. And it's deep in me to live by sight. We can show this by our conversation. Oh, we just quickly talk about politics and campaigns and taking back America and taking back this and that from the ingrates. And we forget the cross and God who's taken back uh, humanity for himself and his glory. And that bleeds all the way to show the worth of the blood of the Lamb until we get to heaven. That's hard to believe. But in the end, beloved, we have to believe. It's not about how hard it is to believe, even. It's about God, not ourselves. 
And God who gives nothing more than we can handle, but everything so that we can walk closer to him. Because if he's near, and he is, he's near all the time. And he never, ever forsakes you. And so, beloved, you think he's not so near? Maybe it's because you're far away from him. Your faith isn't strong. Believe again and again and again. And don't be thinking that there's some other way, there's some easy thing, there's some location you've got to be or you just position yourself in this and you'll be ready to receive grace because then you become more acceptable to God and all of these things. Don't think that way. Bow, repent, believe, and know this. It's through the confession of Christ in all of the impossibilities that there's salvation not only, but this this wonderful sense of the victory, the victory for today, the victory for tomorrow, and the next day, The victory, though the whole world is saying, we don't want you, we evict you. We don't want you. Because God has said, I want you. I'm near to you. Look. Believe. Amen. We pray, Lord, your blessing. May we know your favor. May we confess Jesus, your son, and may it be salvation for us and the prosperity of the true gospel, the victory in Messiah. God, forgive our sins of preaching and of hearing. And as we rise up, may we truly give thanks. May we go forward as your people and truly, truly humbled and glad. Amen.